Is it? Ah, it was on mute. It was on mute. So, Ruth. Uh, former U.S. President Benjamin Franklin, and the, the less we say about U.S. presidents at the moment, the better, <laughs> whilst he was still a U.S. ambassador to France, used to attend a club called the Infidels Club. It was a club of men who met together to read and study literary masterpieces. And when it was Franklin's turn to choose a story, he decided to read the story of Ruth but he changed the names in the story so that it wouldn't be recognized. When he had finished reading to them, the others were unanimous in their praise, and they said this was one of the most beautiful short stories that they had ever heard. And of course, they wanted to know where it was from. And he told them that it was from the Bible. The Bible, a book that they had regarded with scorn and derision, and which they said that there was nothing good. They were obviously wrong about the Bible and particularly wrong about the story of Ruth. So we're going to be looking over these next four weeks at the story of Ruth. And I want to just give you a little bit of a perspective, historical perspective, as we get started. Ruth's story occurs uh, during the time of the judges. People like Gideon and uh, Deborah and Jephthah, and Ehud, personal favorite, and Samson. It was generally a pretty dark period of Israel's history. And uh, the constant refrain through the book of Judges is simply this. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was a time back in the days of the evening service so very long ago, when I decided that it would be great to study through the book of Judges. It wasn't one of my better decisions. It was utterly depressing, week upon week upon week of negativity and depression and darkness. But this was the period of time that Ruth lived in. It was a time of anarchy and of violence. People were far away from God. And society mirrored that distance from the laws and values that God had given. From time to time, God would raise up a judge. And for a short while, people would begin to live their lives somewhat more under God's rule. But pretty soon they returned to their own ways. Those are times that I think that we can quite easily relate to. And uh, I didn't know Phil was going to do that with the prayers, but not, nor did he, he's just said. <laughs> but actually that, that fits really well into what we're talking about today and in the next few weeks. In our own nation, of course, we have a semblance of law and order and a certain morality. Other nations, it's more overt than here that there is a complete breakdown in law and order and morality. We are searching for a king in all of the wrong places. In all of the wrong places. Whether it's David Cameron or Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn or anybody else, or dare I even say it, or Hillary Clinton. <laughs> There is no true king 
and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And that's the story of the book of Judges. It's the story of the time of Ruth. There is no king, and everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And the question that we're left asking is simply this. How do we live as those who have a king amongst those who have no king? Because we have a king. We have a king upon the throne. We have a king, the Lord God Almighty. And we are those who have submitted our lives to his lordship. So how do we live as those who have a king in a nation, in a world where there is no true king? And this is what the book of Ruth is really all about. It's all about ordinariness. Ordinariness. Please put your hand up if ever you think that you are ordinary. So it's about us, isn't it? That's kind of encouraging, isn't it? It's about us. It's about ordinary people experiencing the roller coaster of life while having faith, while putting their hands sorry, their lives into the hands of the king. During this week, I found this quote, and uh, I thought it was great, by G.K. Chesterton. He's always good at quotes. And he says this, The most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children. I really like that. This is the most extraordinary thing in the world. It's just ordinariness. It's somehow extraordinary. And this is about the book of Ruth. So let me read you something else I think I put in the newsletter. The book of Ruth is different from the other books in the Bible. There are no miracles. Boo. <laughs> no special effects. No signs and wonders. No prophets. No direct messages from God. It's much more ordinary. There's women and men. There's marriage and in-laws. There's children and infertility. There's joy and sadness. There's life and death. In a lot of ways, it's a lot like the world you and I inhabit. Ordinary, mundane even. And yet Ruth is a beautiful picture of how God is extraordinarily involved in our ordinary lives. Ruth reminds us that the invisible hand of God is always guiding, directing, providing, sustaining and redeeming us. Moreover, the love of the invisible God is often seen in our visible relationships with one another. Ruth will teach us about love, the redeeming love of God, and redeeming love in our relationships. Our whole year has been around discipleship. And there is nothing more to be said on discipleship than about taking our ordinary lives and putting them into the hands of our extraordinary God and living under his lordship and rulership. So let me introduce you to the main characters. We have Elimelech, his name means God is the king. So there you go, that's clear, isn't it? And uh, he is married to Naomi, whose name means pleasant. That's nice, isn't it? But their experience of life is not really matching up to their names. They have two sons, Marlon and Kilion. And depending which commentary you read, it means something chirpy like song, or the other one says it means something like mourning and crying, so we'll just ignore them for the moment. <laughs> Let's have a map. Always good to see where we are. Life in Israel 
seem fairly uncertain and unpleasant. God the king seemed to have withdrawn his blessing from the land. He'd done that for a reason. He'd done that because the people in their obsession for prosperity had departed from the worship of God. Does that sound familiar? In their obsession for prosperity, they departed from the worship of God. And worse than that, they'd followed the corrupt Canaanite nation, embracing its corrupt fertility cult worship. And God said so many times, if you abandon me, if you leave my ways, if you cease to worship me and you worship other gods, these things will happen. One of which was famine. The others were things like the exile and so on. The people experienced famine and they experienced threat from the Philistines until the point where they woke up from their disobedience and turned back to God. Now Elimelech did trust God. When his name was meant God the King, that's how he lived. He did trust God. He was a follower of God, a worshipper of God. But maybe in this story, he kind of got his priorities a bit wrong. Maybe he made a decision that was apparently wise in human terms. After all, he thought his family was starving, but turned out to be disastrous. He made a decision that revealed that his faith in God in the circumstances was just a bit wavery. Before we condemn him too much for that, imagine yourself in that situation. You are a father, husband, your family is at risk of starving, and you hear that in Moab, that's the pink bit, which is not very far away from Bethlehem where you live, there is somewhere to get food. What would you do? What would you do? His decision perhaps demonstrated more about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and independence of God. But then we're all pretty good at that, aren't we? Elimelech took his wife and his sons to the heathen country of Moab. It talks in one of the prophets of Moab being the washpot of Israel. So you get kind of idea, picture of what it was like. He took them to Moab, which also had a debased religion, which even included human sacrifice. It wasn't very far away, but there was no famine there. It seemed a really good idea. It seemed like the solution to the problem, but it wasn't really God's best. He left that place of God's blessing because the land in Israel in the Old Testament is really, really important. They left the land of God's blessing to go elsewhere, to seek their own solutions. They left Bethlehem, which means house of bread, to find bread elsewhere. He wasn't the first person to think that his ideas were better than God's. And he won't be the last. And some of those might be sat in this very room. When we feel that things are not going well, when things aren't going our way, when perhaps we feel that God has let us down, or we doubt his care for us. And in front of us, there is a wonderful temptation to sort out our own solutions, to cut God out of the equation, to think we can make a better job for it, of it ourselves. How easy is it to do that? 
when we act on the basis of our own good ideas and not necessarily God's will for us. And the challenge is that we have to learn to trust God in the dark times, isn't it? And it is a challenge. It's never easy to do that. Moab seemed like a great option. It appears from the rest of the story that they probably only intended to go there for a short time. Go there, feed the family, sort everything out, come home again. But we know that that's not what happened because they went there and the sons grew up and the sons got married to Moabite women. And then after a while, Elimelech died and then Marlon and Killian died and there was Naomi and her two daughters-in-law and no children. And things weren't so great, really. And Naomi says to them, you need to go, you need to stay where you are. I'm going home. You need to stay where you are. Because am I going to have another son and are you going to wait for him to grow up and then you're going to marry him? And we go, what? (laughs) But the custom was then that if the husbands died, the daughters-in-law married the next sons in the family. So when she says, Even if I conceived a son tonight, you're not going to wait around for him to grow up to be old enough for you to marry, aren't you? She's just making a joke, really. Kind of a black joke. An exaggeration. You know, there's no hope with me for you. So you might as well stay here. And I'm going home. The really important story, lesson of Ruth, is this, that mistakes may be damaging, but they don't need to be terminal. Everyone makes mistakes. Sometimes they're accidental mistakes. Sometimes they're completely intentional mistakes. Elimelech knew what he was doing. He took his family to Moab. Took them away from the place of God. And they were damaging, but they weren't terminal And Naomi found herself at a dead end. She was pretty desperate. There was no security, no family, no hope, just pain. No social social security, possibly no housing. She was vulnerable. They all were vulnerable outcasts. She was at a dead end, literally. When you get to a dead end... The only way back is the way you came. But how hard is that? How many of you have been on a kind of walk in the dales where after a while you've thought to yourself, "Um, we're not in the place where we thought we were. And, uh, And at that point, you know that there is an option. It's a very simple option. It's an option where you turn around and then you... Walk the four miles back in the direction that you already... How hard is that? How often do you look at the map and see whether there's another option, a kind of even if it takes 10 miles, it's better than turning around and walking back the exact same way that you have come. Some of you will have this experience with driving as well. <laughs> when you get to a dead end... More often than not, it's time to turn around. It's just simply time to turn around. And Naomi heard that in, she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people in Israel 
by providing food for them. She heard that. Now, a few years ago, I was um, reading something or other, and I, I learned this interesting fact, which I am about to share with you. So if you could try to find it interesting, that would be good. It is about salmon, baby salmon, salmon smolt, to be precise. And there is a window of opportunity in this young salmon's life where, as a freshwater fish, it can adapt to sea or salt water. It can change. I think that's amazing, apart from anything else. But it's only a small window of opportunity, and if it doesn't seize that moment in its little salmon head and think to itself, I would like to not be a freshwater fish anymore, I want to be a saltwater fish, the moment passes, and it can no longer adapt to salt water anymore. So there we go. That's interesting, isn't it? There are windows of opportunity, aren't there, for us. There are windows of opportunity where we can see and respond to God's opportunities, and it's his time. It's his moment, and sometimes it's now and ever. Not always, but, but sometimes it is. And Naomi has her window of opportunity. She's heard of God's kindness to Israel, but she has a choice. Does she even want to return to God? I mean, she feels that God has let her down, big time. Does she even want to return to him? You'll notice at the end of the chapter, chapter one, she says here, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. That's her perspective. It's not even true. They went to Moab because they were starving in Israel. But when she's run that through her mind over the last N years, she's going, God's let me down. Do I even want to go back when God has let me down? Does she want to face potential ridicule from her friends back in Israel? Perhaps they were a little bit arrogant. Maybe they said to their friends, you know, you guys all ought to come to Moab with us because we're going to be fine in Moab and you're going to starve here in Israel. You should come with us. And the friend said, no, it's fine, we'll stay here. We'll take our chance. Or what about when she comes back, the very lovely Naomi, with her two boys who've gone away, and now she's come back, a widow in mourning, with both her sons have died. Maybe she doesn't want to do that, to come back and face other people. Even in her desperation, does she want to leave a place that she'd lived in for so long and which was familiar? Because we become content with our environment even when it's not good. Even when it isn't good. I don't know if any of you have read the book uh, of the lady in the van or, or seen the film. It's kind of basically a homeless lady, but she lives in this van. And it's awful. It's absolutely awful. Most of the books are a description of how awful it is. And people offer help to her and to clean things and to restore her. But she doesn't want to because she's comfortable in her sordid mess, which is the only way of describing it. We're getting acclimatized to our home where the kitchen is in the bathroom and, and the hall and Caitlin's bedroom and the kitchen floor is about two meters lower than it used to be in mud, 
you, it's amazing how quickly you get used to stuff, even when it's horrible. <laughs> I don't think I'll have a problem moving back into the kitchen, eventually. We get used to how things are in our lives. The mess that we're in, if we're far away from God, or we make mistakes or whatever, we get used to that. And it's quite hard to turn around and come back. Did she want to leave her daughters-in-law? And it was the only family that she had, and she thought they were going to stay and she was going to go back to Israel. But you know what? She sees a window of opportunity and she seizes it. She realizes that the road to a hopeful future lay in returning to that place of God's blessing, the land of God's covenant. Someone else saw a window of opportunity too. That was Ruth. The opportunity to show kindness and faithfulness to her mother-in-law and to express allegiance to Naomi's God, who she'd come to trust. I love this bit of the story because Ruth sees Naomi's faith even in the dark times. And when we go through the dark times and the difficult times and the times that feel a bit of a failure, I think more often than not we think, well, no one else will see anything of my relationship with God at the moment because everything's rubbish. But actually Ruth sees Naomi's faith and learns to trust Naomi's God in the dark place. I find that really challenging. She must have seen something of Naomi's kindness, her self-sacrificial care. You know, the daughters-in-law move into the, into the husband's home to look after the in-laws. That's how it works in many cultures now. But Naomi says to them, you go home because there you'll get another chance and you'll not have a chance with me. She sees that. It's really self-sacrificial, really giving. She probably sees her open and real faith. Now, we don't have to pretend that everything's wonderful all the time, do we? To be open and honest. Perhaps she hears her express her sad and confused feelings before God. But whatever, Naomi's life opened a window for Ruth to experience God's grace. And that has to be our prayer, doesn't it? That our lives, in the good and the challenging times, in the mountaintops and in the deep valleys, will somehow open a window for other people to experience and know the grace of God wherever they are. This story is about ordinary people living ordinary lives who are concerned about food. I know that's not a priority for many of you. Who are concerned about their family's welfare. Who face marriage and children and childlessness and bereavement and doubt and even destitution. Ordinary people. People who had faith, sometimes that was like one of those iron cables that you see from bridges, that sort of strong. But who at other times had such fragile faith that it was like, um, like the one thread from a spider's web that you see on an early misty morning. Both. And yet God took care of them. Because he's the king. 
and he incorporated them into his bigger plan. And I know you're not supposed to say the end of the story. But ultimately, Ruth was the ancestor of King David. And he was the ancestor of... The answer's always Jesus. <laughs> now, what we can only ever see things from a limited perspective, can't we? Love this picture, the Arc de Triomphe, Paris. We can only ever see things from a limited perspective. Things happen to us, don't they? Things that feel and are earth-shattering. Things that are earth-shattering. Things that threaten our faith and make us wonder whether life is worth living, that kind of earth-shattering. We can only see them from right here. It's just how it is, isn't it? But God sees things from a different perspective, from an eternal perspective. And his purposes are bigger than anything that we can ever really fully grasp and understand. So we don't know, do we, what's in store for us? Some of you are going, yes, I know what's been in the store cupboard for me, and I, I don't like it much, actually. Some of us don't know. We live every day under the kingship of Christ in a world which has no king. We have to learn to trust him even in the tough times. We don't know how God wants to fit us into his big picture, do we? We just need to be faithful and obedient and available to God. So I just want to remind you that mistakes are not terminal. Because I think many of us think they are. But actually, in God's economy, they are not. He is a, uh, a master at taking our mistakes and transforming us, forgiving us, weaving them into his big plans, even using them for his glory. There's amazing things with our mistakes. Good job, isn't it, really? Mistakes are not terminal. Maybe you need to turn around. Maybe you've been walking for miles in the wrong direction. You kind of know that, really. It's a bit embarrassing turning around. Maybe you need to turn around. If you're starting walking back, keep walking. You may have walked a long way. We need to look out for the windows of opportunity that God is creating to bless us and to lead us on in his ways. And we need to remember that God is involved in our ordinary lives. Our ordinary lives. Somebody went out this morning from the 9.15 and as she was leading, she said, uh, leaving, she said to me, I've started, this was before today, obviously, said, I've started thanking God for the ordinary things in my life. I thought it was wonderful. Maybe we start there. Thanking God for the ordinary things in our lives and then seeing how he is, takes those things and uses them for his glory. <laughs>